0: Well, welcome to faith into our message series in the gospel according to Job. Why in the world would we do a sermon on the book of Job, you might ask? That's such a depressing book from what you might remember. It's all about trouble and suffering. It's like the worst things that could happen to a person. Why do we want to focus on that? Well, besides that it's in the Bible, Uh, Job has probably uh, been considered one of the oldest books of the scriptures. A famous poet Alfred Tennyson said, this is the greatest poem of ancient and modern literature. And renowned philosopher, historian, mathematician Thomas Carlyle said, I called this book, apart from all theories about it, one of the grandest things ever penned. There is nothing written in the Bible or out of it of equal literary merit. And Martin Luther uh, said about Job that it's his favorite part of the Bible, Job is the most magnificent and sublime book, more magnificent and more sublime than any other book. Uh, it's been said that what you have in this book is, incomparable, is an incomparable blessing to your soul. Well, so maybe you struggle with worship. Uh, Job teaches us about worship. Uh, maybe you're hazy about the providence or the sovereign rule of God will teaches us a lot about that. Or maybe you feel far from God uh, and you don't know where he is or what he's up to. Well, you can cry out with Job. Oh, that I might find him, he says. Maybe you find it hard to be honest with God. Well, here in Job we find a man who complains before God, who is brutally honest with God and frank, and who argues passionately with God. Here, we find that Job is one who takes his disappointment to God. And so, there's really no other book like Job that shows us uh, the gut-wrenching, honest spirituality. Uh, He throws off empty religion. He kills hypocrisy. So, the book of Job itself is concerned about the question of faith in a sovereign God in the face of suffering. Can God be trusted? Is God good and just as he rules the world and he, as he interacts with my own life? How big of a deal is faith to God? Do you ever experience deep confusion in what God is doing in your life? Uh, Job shows us And answers many of these questions. Uh, Just this morning, as I as I see the scan of the CNN reports, uh, three people were killed and four were wounded, shot in a waffle house in Nashville. Uh, And uh, yesterday, a suicide blast: Uh, uh, 31 people and dozens uh, killed, and dozens wounded in uh, in Kabul. Uh, Afghanistan uh, in their desire for free election and voter registration. And then this morning I heard from Jeff Beans that a young uh, girl that uh, our group has been praying for, uh, Gia uh, Conolongo, from a massive brain bleed, uh, had died last night. I don't know the losses and the issues facing your own life, but Job has words for us about that. Uh, so, many of you sang happy birthday for me, thank you so much for that. Happy birthday, I get to preach on Job 1, on my birthday. You know, and it reminds me of uh, a Young Life song that we used to sing in high school. The high schoolers would sing, they had a different version of the happy birthday song. It goes, happy birthday, happy birthday. Grief, misery, and despair, people dying everywhere, happy birthday, uh, happy birthday." So, that's what we sang in high school, and uh, it might not sound very happy, it wasn't very happy, but it was kind of like a little twist on the happy birthday song. And But, as I think about that, I think the big question is, is where is your happiness? in the midst of life's losses. You know, Job actually came to the point where he he curses the day of his birth. But that was a moment, the experience of utter darkness in the sense of utter abandonment. But that was not the end of Job's story, and it was not the end of his life. And Job shows us how to hold on to God or how God is holding on to us in the midst of life's greatest losses. Let's look at Job 1. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now There was a day when when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. So what is the focus of the book of Job? Many would say that the main purpose of the book of Job is to answer the question of, Why do the righteous suffer if God is loving and all-powerful? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Some people even uh, refer the book of Job to people who are suffering because it will give them answers for what they are going through, they think. Read Job. It will help you feel better, they say. But if you were to... Read the book of Job, these 42 chapters, and I would encourage you to do that or to listen to the 42 chapters. I would encourage that. You will find that nowhere in the book of Job was any reason given for why he suffered. But what Job is given and what you and I need more than anything else when we are asking to make sense out of the confusion of our suffering And the apparent meaningless of suffering in the world is a picture of the glory of God. I thought that the sovereignty of God and suffering was the key focus of Job. And while the book of Job has a lot to say about the sovereignty of God and suffering, it has more to say about the glory of God and our call to faith. The sovereignty of God is one aspect of the glory of God But the glory of God also embraces his righteousness, and his wisdom, and his power, and his patience, and his holiness, and his love, and his infinite, eternal, unchangeable nature. The glory of God is the heaviness, the massiveness of the nature of God. Glory means weighty. It is the experience of being overwhelmed with God. And when the Bible characters are confronted... With the glory of God, we find them falling on their faces, prostrate, which is what happened to Job when he was confronted personally with the glory of God. Uh, John Sanderson was a professor of mine at Covenant Seminary. Uh, he was from Baltimore, and he says all famous people come from Baltimore. <laughs> and uh, he said, try to imagine that you are a very sick person, and an ambulance comes and picks you up. But instead of taking you to the hospital, you are taken to the zoo. You're put on a stretcher and you're taken through the zoo uh, to go on a sightseeing trip. You're taken to look at the giraffes, uh, the hippopotami, uh, the elephants, gorillas. Uh, no. A lion, wild donkeys, bears, an ostrich, crocodile, and you're taken into the planetarium and then you are taken back to your house and you ask, when am I going to get well? What was that all about? How did all that relate to my problem?" Well, Job gets no explanation why the righteous suffer. He was never told that he was example A on the object of debate. But what he got was a revelation of the glory of God. Do you understand why God created the giraffe or the elephant or the hippopotamus, that big blubbering animal? What good is a hippopotamus? You don't know, but God does. God has a reason, and he doesn't make mistakes. That is the glory of God. God has a reason for the suffering and trials that we go through, even though we don't understand. He does. God doesn't make mistakes. That's the glory of God. And because God doesn't make mistakes, we can trust him. That is what the book of Job is about. It is about the glory of God and faith. But we often live with a sense of entitlement before God. We expect that things should go well for us, particularly if we work hard, if we're faithful. We believe we deserve the good life. God's job is to give And protect us for the good life of health and wealth and prosperity. But Job shows us that God values our character and our faith above our health and our wealth. Job shows us that God will test and build his people's character and their faith. And Job shows us that God will allow bad things to happen to good people, even though we know that there is no one good except God. And so Job shows us that God is worthy of our worship, period. That God is worthy of our worship in good times, he's worthy of our worship in testing times, and he's worthy of our worship even in traumatic times. God is worthy of worship in the good times. And so verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned from evil. Us, we don't know where us is, <laughs> or us was. Uh, it says it's land of the east, somewhere. Uh, we we look at the book of Job, or uh, theologians look at the book of Job, and they they say it needed to be placed in the time of the patriarchs, in the early parts of the scriptures, because. Here, Job uh, doesn't mention anything about the law. He mentions nothing about uh, the the Levites or Moses, uh, but he is the head of his family, and he's offering sacrifices for his children. And so that was one of the things that uh, patriarchs did. But Job was a very wealthy man, obviously, very, very wealthy. Uh, He had a large family, seven sons, three daughters, possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke. Uh, Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was the uh, Supreme Court Justice, and she grew up, uh, her dad was a cattle rancher. And I remember hearing an interview with her, and she says, you would never ask a cattle rancher how many cattle they had. (laughs) It's like saying, well, how much money do you have in your bank account? Obviously, this is the breadth of Job's wealth. He had tremendous Tremendous wealth. He was of uh, Bill Gates, or Warren Buffett, and uh, Jeff Bezos of the uh, Amazon. Uh, Job had the good life. He experienced the good life. Grace and wealth and health, and he had this large family. You know, wealth is not a bad thing. Actually, wealth is a very good thing if it's used wisely. And what we find with Job is that he saw himself as a steward of God's grace and riches. Uh, And he was a man, as we find later, uh, was very conscientious of those who had nothing or the poor. Uh, We find that he was a man who was very, very generous. And you know, uh, that is a a wonderful thing, uh, when you have people of means being generous in God's kingdom. But not only was Job a rich man, Uh, but he was also a spiritually devoted family man. And so it gives this illustration of of his devotion, his spiritual state, how he uh, cared for his children, how he was concerned for his children. These are adult children. Uh, So he is still very concerned with the spiritual character of his children, and also for where their hearts are. Uh, It says this occasion where the, 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 the sons would have these special days of celebration and I'm imagining maybe it was their birthday, I don't know, and they invited the sisters to come, and so this was a very close-knit family. These siblings loved each other, and they loved being around each other, and these were parties that went on for more than a day. And, uh, you know, I, what's interesting about this story is that the parents aren't apparently at these parties. And uh, just not too long ago, we had, you know, all my children, I have five kids, and we had them all come over for a nice dinner. And we were having a wonderful time. And then all of a sudden, literally within five minutes, they all left and departed the house. And um, we're, Marie and I are sitting here alone. I said, wow, you know, that's like everybody left all at once. What's that about? Well, I can tell you what that's about. They went out partying someplace. As a, as as kids, and they they enjoy being with each other, and it's a wonderful thing to know that your 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 kids are enjoying their relationship. And so, what we find, however, is that Job was concerned about their spiritual state. Uh, is it possible that they cursed God in their hearts, like not even with their lips, but just like that they in their hearts he was concerned. And so he would go and offer sacrifices. What this presents is just a man of great spiritual character and devotion to his children and his family. And so Job, it says, was one who feared God and turned away or shunned evil. So we see this man who's living the good life, but he was a very good and devoted man to the Lord. But then we see in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And what we find here, the sons of, of God are considered angels. Uh, angels that have come to present themselves before God for their assignments. And so we know that that the angels would come around the throne and God, it says, uh, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who inherit eternal life. And so we find angels coming for their assignments uh, before God. But it says also that Satan came among them. And we find that there's this interchange between the Lord and Satan from where have you come. And Satan says, from going to and fro the earth. Uh, And we can imagine, uh, we find that uh, in Peter 5, it says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we We know that Satan has a certain amount of liberty of engagement, seeking to devour, seeking to expose. He's often observing uh, the sons of God, the children of God, because he knows that they will do great damage against his kingdom. And so he's seeking ways to trip them up if he has the power to do so. And so we find the Lord saying to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like God is beaming as a proud father over his son. Uh, it was interesting, uh, Steve Sharkey, uh, uh, elder at Faith, uh, was on his way to uh, Charlotte to visit his other son, Jack, and, and he was telling me on the phone, he says, Hey, listen, I'm going to send you a clip from, uh, a video clip from my son, Chris, who's, who who produced his own bass." clip. A song that he's playing in this concert in this high school. He says, look at this. So I did, and it was wonderful. But as I listened to Steve, I could see he's just beaming as a proud dad over the accomplishments of his son. Well, I feel you can feel this in the way God is speaking about Job. He is very happy. He is very proud of Job. Well, Satan says, uh, he answers the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? And this is really, really the axis, this is the centerpiece of this whole story. And the, and the big question, does Job fear God for no reason? And that's the question. Because the argument that Satan is, uh, is submitting is that, well, God, of course... He worships you. Of course he fears you. Look how good you are to him. You flower him and all these gifts, all these wealth, all these riches and the protection. You've put a hedge around him, God. Of course he's going to love you. You he ba- you've basically, basically pay for his worship. You know, So of course if you're that good to somebody, they're going to worship you. But... He says, stretch out your hand and touch him, and he will curse you to your face. And so that's the challenge that we find here. Does Job fear God for nothing? You know, many times uh, people come into Christianity with a false notion that, well, if I give my life to Christ, that, you know, my life is going to get better. Uh, you know, he's going to take care of me and and uh, bless me in so many different ways, and, and uh you know, one one uh, young person gave their life to Christ at some conference, and and uh, you know he he said, "Okay, I got eternal life now." Uh, and then later he says, "But I think this was a rotten deal because now I'm hearing that you know about suffering, and I'm hearing that I might have to serve God in some foreign land." And I he says, "You know, I feel like I've been duped and tricked." Well, that person really didn't have a good understanding of the nature of salvation. Uh, because God doesn't just save us uh, just to give us eternal life here. Uh, he, he saved us because he loves us, but he's also going to sanctify us. And that's not going to be an easy trip. So does Job fear God for nothing? Now that is the challenge. Um, that is the challenge that is offered to God. And God chose Job a preeminently righteous man for testing. So being good does not guarantee the experience of the good life. In fact, we find here that God will test such goodness. As I mentioned last week, that In Proverbs 17, the crucible for silver the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Isaiah 48, 10 says, See, I have refined you, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Last week, we saw how God took an entire nation for 40 years in the wilderness to test their hearts. We find here a personal illustration of God testing a man's heart. Uh, Since God will test people, we need to refrain from, in, from the popular judgment that says people are getting what they deserve when things are going bad in their lives, uh, that, you've, they, that people have got what's coming to them. Uh, Job teaches that you cannot put people in such a box. But it, we need to see here that it is God who is sovereign uh, over such testing in our lives. Uh, it is God who permits this testing God is the one holding the keys. It is. It was Satan who was allowed to be in the presence of God. The Lord was the one who engaged Satan. It was the Lord who limited Satan's actions. Satan is chained, even though it might be a long chain. God and Satan are not equal forces of good and evil, duking it out. Satan was a created being who went haywire and became Uh, bent on rebellion. Uh, He is, in a sense, the the supreme cynic in the heavenly court. And even though we know that one day he will be thrown out of heaven and judged, we also know that he roams the earth, as I mentioned before, and prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is a purpose-driven Satan. He wants and he seeks to destroy but God has hedged him in that song that, we, uh, that the children sang and the covenant group sang. Uh, Jesus' power, superpower, Satan power, inferior power. That is true. That song basically, if you got that song, you got the sermon. That was the whole sermon. That song, you know. There is no disputing the fact that God is in charge. Have you put a hedge? Have you not put a hedge? He had. The point we must grasp here is that God sovereignly reigns over our lives. It is God who blesses us, and it's God who tests us. God has a hedge around us at this very moment, and even when the hedge feels like it has come down, God is still in charge. Our confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, talks about the providence of God uh, the sovereign rule of God it says, "God, the great Creator of all things, upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by His completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with His infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of His own will, all to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy." And that's a lot there, but it basically says God's the man. <laughs> God is in charge. Uh, God is the boss, and he is a good boss, even though we can't understand his ways. There was an eight-year-old daughter of of a PCA minister, and she was asking her dad on the way to bed, Daddy, why did God allow evil? If God is God, why does he allow evil to continue? And the father was tempted to say, well, why don't you go ask your mother? How do you answer an eight-year-old that question with 25 words or less? He felt totally inadequate. He stumbled and struggled, and he just he said, Well, sin, wickedness, evil, ultimately, will serve God's good plan. God will, in the end, be glorified through it. He felt totally like a failure to his daughter, but his daughter said to him, I just want to to hear you say that God is in charge. And the point is, is that God is still on the throne when wickedness seems to be running wild. That God is still on the throne even though when we go to bed and we hear the gunshots. And God is still on the throne when our world seems like it's crashing. We can go on laboring because God is in charge. And it's because Job believed that God was ultimately in charge. He could trust him and he could worship him. But we see that there was a man in verse 1. And we see in verse 6, now there was a day. And then we see in verse 13, now there was a day. When sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And, and we went through this, we heard this. We heard the series of tragedies. The first tragedy is they were plowing fields and the oxen. Then the Sabians came and fell upon them and took the donkeys and destroyed the servants. And then, while he's still speaking, another it says a fire came from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I alone am escaped to tell you. And while I still speaking, the Chaldeans uh, formed three raids and, uh, and and took the camels and struck down the servants. And I alone escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at the elder's brother's house. And behold, a great wind came and tore down the four corners of the house and it fell and, and they all died. All of your children are dead, Job. But I alone have escaped to tell you. How, <laughs> what? What do you do in the face of such... Horrible news. Well, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, it was because Job believed that God was in charge, that he could trust him in, still worship him. Job didn't blame the attacking Sabians. He didn't blame the lightning from heaven. He didn't blame the raiding Chaldeans. And he did not blame the sudden winds, and he did not blame Satan. Job put the blame squarely where it belonged, on God. And because Job knew that ultimately the cause was on the will of God, or the permissive will of God, the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, ever-present, holy, and good God, even though he couldn't understand it. Job could worship the Lord. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, Johnny Erickson, uh, as I mentioned, maybe some past uh, sermons that you've Heard uh, was this graduate from Woodlawn High School. She was voted the most ath- most athletic girl of that school. She rode horses, and uh, she was very popular. She broke her neck in the Chesapeake Bay when she was in the uh, when she was eighteen years old, right after graduating, and uh, she was in a state of deep confusion, uh, paralyzed from the neck down. But she had heard about this 16-year-old unpopular paper boy by the name of Steve Estes. Soon after uh, meeting him, she says, So I understand you're, the, you're big into the Bible. Tell me, do you think God had anything to do with breaking my neck? And here's a 16-year-old high schooler. And Steve uh, felt like he just had the chair knocked out from underneath of him, struggling to get up off the floor to answer someone whose life dreams had been crushed and who would be sitting in the wheelchair until death comes. He was stunned to be asked the question of where God was in the whole event, and he felt very unqualified to open his mouth. Even though he knew the Bible, uh, he had never test-driven those truths in such a difficult context. But he thought, if the Bible can't work in this girl's life, then it isn't for real. And so he cleared his throat, and he jumped off the cliff, and he said, Johnny, God put you in that chair. I don't know why, but if you'll trust him instead of fighting him, you'll find out. If not in this life, then in the next He let you break your neck, Johnny, because he loves you. While Steve felt the answer sounded trite, it wasn't to her. Johnny has spent the last 50-plus years in that wheelchair proving the love of God and his perfect will for her life. And she's been an amazing testimony of a woman who has found in her God to be true and has found her God to be good in the face of unbelievable suffering. Uh, She writes a poem in one of her books. Uh, When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to build so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, then watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into shapes and forms of clay which only God can understand. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, yet God bends but never breaks when man's good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with mighty power infuses him with every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. You know, Job did not have what you and I have. He didn't have the opening chapters. He didn't have the backstory of that dialogue, of what was happening in that exchange between God and Satan. Job didn't have the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, that, that pulls back the curtain to allow us a peek in to know more of the mind and the workings of God. Job didn't have so much, but this is what Job had. He had faith. Job had faith, a faith that God took great delight in. He believed that God was good, that God was in charge, and that God had a perfect plan, even though he couldn't imagine what it was. And because of Job could worship God. You see, Satan could take away Job's flocks and business. Satan could take away Job's servants and his workforce. Satan could take even his family and children away. But Satan could not take away Job's worship. And Satan can't understand that. It absolutely makes no sense that people, would worship God for nothing. That people would worship God for just who he is, just his character. But you see, that is the glory of God. That God is worthy of worship for just who he is and not for what he does for us. And because Job knew that, God was still the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-faithful, all-wise, all-holy, just, good God. He could still worship God. We find in Job in Job nineteen. Job knew something about the nature of God, and he says, "I know that my redeemer lives. He, I know that my redeemer lives, and in the end, I will see him. I will stand, and upon the earth, I will see him. And though my flesh is destroyed, yet I will see him in my body. I will see him, and so we." Know that Job had an intuitive sense of the nature of a Redeemer God who was coming after him. How is your faith today? (laughs) You may feel your faith is pretty weak. You don't need a great faith. You have a great Savior. A mustard seed of faith, just a little teeny, just a yearning towards this God, is the faith that he will use to transform you. A faith that he tests, but he refines to be pure gold. A faith that it will amount to eternal glory, as we read from 1 Peter chapter 1. The Lord is my portion in the land. The Lord is good forevermore. And so we find that Job encourages us to hold on to this God who holds on to us. He encourages us to worship God for nothing because he is worthy. As we close, uh, Horatio Spafford, we sang this song today uh, about uh, this businessman from Chicago who lost not only uh, his business in the Chicago fire, he, his, uh, his four-year-old uh, son had scarlet fever, and uh, desiring for his wife and his four daughters to get away uh, to England to get some rest renewal, uh, he sent them ahead because he had some business uh, back in Chicago. Well, on the way, that ship intersected with another ship, and it sunk in 12 minutes. And several days later, the survivors uh, landed in Wales, and Mrs. Anna Spafford, his wife, cabled her husband with two sobering words, saved alone. All four daughters died in that moment. And so as, as, as Horatio Spafford Uh, got on the next ship to go to to Wales, uh, we find that when he gets to the place where the vessel went down, he pens that that song, It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know what you have gone through, what brokenness you might be in, or what brokenness you might experience in the future, but I want you to know that you have a God who is sovereign, who, who rules, who is infinite in his goodness, who has a plan of eternal glory, he will transform whatever losses that you are experiencing into an eternal weight of glory that transcends all of them. Let us practice that faith. Let us stand together as we sing it as well.